As we come now, I want to just take a moment and let's come before this God. This week, uh, a man that I respected greatly went to be with the Lord. He was up in Rock Hill. And as I was at his uh, memorial service and the graveside, I was reminded about that hymn of one day, mansions of glory are going to be ours. That the, the pain of this world and all of it pales in comparison to the glories that we are to receive in Christ Jesus. That the things that we're experiencing, the hurt and the effects of the fall in this life are going to be gone one day. Do you realize that and know that? That the things that we struggle with, any of you struggle with stuff? Boy, I do. Any of you get disappointed? I do. I get discouraged and sometimes I just go, Lord, how long? You do know that that's a biblical statement. Lord, how long? When will you come back? And would it be soon? That should be the cry of every believer. Lord, come back soon. Because it's that, that lover who is away from you and you're ready for him to come home. That child or that spouse or that parent or that friend that you so desire to be with. That's our God. And so in that kind of intimacy, let's go before him this morning, acknowledging our desire for him and our need for him and our love for him. Let's pray. God, we come and we pray. Prayer is a mysterious thing. We speak or we even think in our mind and you hear us. And somehow in this communication, it moves your heart to action. Father, we don't understand it, but yet we do it because you say, come and pray, come and speak with me. We want to be back in those early moments of creation when Adam and Eve walked with you in the cool of the evening, a conversation as friends together. God, we want that kind of intimacy. We, we desire so much to know that you're with us every moment of every day and that you'll never leave us or forsake us and that you will never let our hands slip. You'll never let our foot stumble. You never sleep or slumber. You who, who has created the world, who keeps it, keep us as well. God, would you remind us of that good news today? For there are folks here this morning who are deep down in anguish. There's turmoil going on in their lives. They look wonderful on the outside, but on the inside, there is no peace. There is no shalom. There is no rest. God, would you come and be their rest? Would you be close to them? Would you be their healer? Father, would you strengthen them to whatever it is that they're facing? And would they know that when you are for us, nothing can stand against us. God, there is no power of hell. There is nothing else in this world that stands against the name of Jesus Christ. And we claim his name today. Father, we praise you. We thank you for your spirit, which is ministering in our midst. And I pray that you would move in the lives of those who are here today, that they would see victory in their lives over sin, old patterns and addictions, that they would see a movement of your spirit in their life, that the young people in this church, they wouldn't go through those years that so many of us look back on and say, gosh, that's my testimony, how the Lord has redeemed it. Praise the Lord. God, I pray that these young people would walk with you closely. They wouldn't be tempted by the world and all that it has to offer, but they would see the world as it is to be designed, as something used to glorify your name. Father, we praise you that you're so good to us. We ask that you would bless our church, not that we would be a great church, but we would continue to be a humble church, pointing everyone that comes near to us to a great God and saying that salvation belongs to our God and he sits upon his throne forever. Father, we praise you and we thank you 
that you're with us today. Bless now the reading and hearing of your word, that we'd be encouraged through it. In Christ's name, amen. And so we come to God's word this morning, and we're looking at the letter that Paul wrote to the book, uh, to the churches in Galatia, which is Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey area there on the Mediterranean rim. And it was a place that you could probably say was kind of like a spiritual Disney world. If you wanted to find a God, there was a God there for your needs. There were gods from all kinds of backgrounds. All, it was everywhere. And so you could just sort of move around during the course of a week. Go celebrate at this temple. Go do this. If you had this need, you go to this God. And then here comes Paul preaching, no, there is one God and one God only. And he trumps every other God. He is the God. And his temple is the temple. And you don't have to go to it. You're now his temple. He now takes up residence with you. He was, Paul was teaching in a time frame when it said earthly stuff was dirty, that the world was dirty and polluted, that the body was dirty. And so you had to sort of empty yourself of yourself. You had to transcend the physical realm in order to become more spiritual. And here Paul is teaching this gospel that God came into the physical realm and took up residence here to redeem it, to make this glorious and to make you glorious in the middle of it. People had never heard anything like this. And it was amazing what was happening. It was changing lives. Because all of a sudden people were going, you mean I don't have to earn the favor of this God? You mean I don't have to do something in order to get him to love me? I simply have to receive the love that he's given to me. And Paul said, yes, absolutely. It was radical and it was new and it was transforming lives all around. That's what Paul was dealing with here. He was writing this letter to those churches to encourage them to stay the course. Don't veer to the left or to the right. For freedom Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and don't return again to a yoke of slavery. Don't take that beauty of the law, which is designed to sort of lead us to Christ, and then once we're to Christ, to lead us how we're to live our lives, to respond to the Father. Don't take those railroad tracks and lean them up against the wall of heaven and try to climb them like a ladder. The law was never designed to do that. You can never earn your way to heaven. Paul was saying, remember that. Remember that. For if you begin to try to work your way into heaven, you lose it altogether. There's nothing you can do. See, Paul would go up against all the economists of the day to day and say, you know what? There is such a thing as a free lunch. You receive it. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to do anything else to get it. Just simply say, God, I can't do anything to get it. May I have it? And he says, it's yours already. You get it. That's the beauty of the gospel. And then what happens in that transaction, and we're going to talk about this a little bit more today and then move on here in chapter 3, looking at Paul's challenge to us about how it is that we know we're changed by the gospel to become Christians, but how is it that we're developed in our lives to look more and more like Christ? That's the question that we're going to look at today. Paul was saying you have the Spirit dwelling with you, working in you, and you can do all things in Christ Jesus who strengthens you. You are more than conquerors in him. You can be overcomers in this world. You can overcome the sin that so easily entangles us. You can love that unlovable person. You can forgive that wrong that was done to you. You can do that because God is with you and for you and not against you. There was a rookie one time back in the 80s who played for the Chicago Bulls. And he was interviewed after the game. And they said, what did you think about your first game? He said it was awesome. Michael Jordan and I combined for 56 tonight. Jordan scored 52. This sort of perspective, isn't it? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I'm working, but you know who's really working? Christ in you. 
that partnership, that merger, that coming together, that uniqueness of what the gospel says to us is that God doesn't say, all right, Bill, here you go. Get going. It's not like the parent. If you've had little ones, you remember when your kids were growing up and they started to, to walk? You'd start them over at one side of the room and like, the mom would be holding the child sort of like on a bungee cord and the dad would be like, okay, now come on. And you'd let go. And the child would sort of teeter and totter and fall a little bit and then get up and then go. Some of us think that's the Christian life. It's not it. Christian life is Christ in you, with you, walking with you every step along the way. No chance of failure. Will you fall? You'll mess up. Will you teeter? Sure. But God's right there holding you every step along the way. Paul was saying, I've taught you these things. Now what's happened? You started so well. What happened? How did these bag techniques come back into play? I saw a friend of mine up in uh, Rock Hill this week, and I was kidding with him about my golf game. He said, so how's the golf game coming? And I said, well, I've gotten some more tips. I was playing with somebody recently about the fourth hole. He looked at me and he goes, Bill, would you be offended if I offered you some tips? <laughs> Which usually means, wow, you're bad. And um, I'm embarrassed to have, he wasn't embarrassed, but he gave me some tips. And so I was telling my buddy this, and then I said, well, I've got all these tips. He said, so what's the problem? I said, I'm falling right back into my old habits. It's amazing how quickly I fall right back into old habits. How I go back to old and wrong swing patterns. How I do things wrong. And it's the same way with the Christian life. Paul says here, you started out so well. You're heading down the right track. You had the right information. You believed it in your hearts. You're going, what happened? Why are you moving to the left or to the right? Remember we talked about this. Why is it that you're not walking in line with the gospel anymore? Peter, how is it that you've fallen back into racism? Peter, how is it that you've fallen back into legalism of saying you can't eat with these Gentile pagans, but you have to remove yourself from him? Peter, oh, what happened? And so he says this to the church in Galatia, and he says it to us. And so if you've got your Bibles, uh, turn to chapter 3 of Galatians. We're going to read the first 10 verses. I love the Bible because it's real and it's raw and it's human and personal, but it's God's word. And look at what Paul says. Oh, my sweet and dear friends in Galatia. No. Oh, foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, now then that it is those of, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham." And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. This is God's word. 
May he add his blessing to the reading and to the hearing of it. Amen. So, first question, I'm really going to only ask two questions today. First question is this, how are you saved? Second question is, how are you changed? First question, how are you saved? I'll reframe it. Reframe it. How is it that you become a Christian? How are you born again? How is it that you receive the righteousness of Christ? How is it that you uh, know that you're going to go to heaven and all your sins are forgiven? How is it? That's what Paul's asking here in large part. He goes, folks, he asks rhetorical questions. Folks, did you begin this way or this way? Knowing that they would go, oh, well, of course we started this way. And Paul's answer would have been, how is it that you were saved? And your response would be, what? What are some words that you would describe? And I know this is a little different from some of you for your church experience. But if you feel comfortable, say them. What are some words that you would describe to use to, uh, to, use to describe salvation? What are some words? If I say, how are you saved? What would you say? Forgiven? Grace. Mercy, faith, yeah, all of those. Those are words that are saying, it's by grace that you have been saved through faith, not of works. No one should boast because it's all God doing it. Paul was reminding them, he was constantly going back and saying, folks, you need to understand how you are justified. How you are made right with God. It is absolutely imperative for the Christian and for the church to know what you believe. And to be able to articulate it well. And when I mean to articulate it, I don't mean just to articulate it out to the world around you. Who else do you need to articulate this gospel to? Your own heart. You have to remind yourself daily of how you're saved because guess what? You forget it every single week. You forget it day by day. We fall back into those old tendencies. Those old tendencies of I can earn it. I'm good enough. I can do this. God, thanks for getting me started across the room. I got it from here. I'm teetering a little, but I'll get there. And God's saying, that's not how it was. I'm the one who's doing it. I will see you through I'm the one who's done it all for you. Do you believe me? If you really believe that, there's a, there's a Bible study that says this. What would it be like if you lived out, it's like, how is it? If you lived as if you really believed what you say you believed. Hmm. What would your life look like if you lived in such a way that you really believed what you say you believed? Would it change the way you lived your life if you really believed that your salvation is secure in Christ Jesus, never to be lost by you? There's nothing you can do that will make God love you more than he does now, and there is absolutely nothing you can do that will make him love you less. If you believed that, would it change the way you loved other people? That you were loved and forgiven not by who you were, but because of who he is. Would it make you then look at people a little differently? Anybody ever had to forgive somebody else? couple of you. Yeah, if you're married daily. Yeah, marriage is a wonderful reminder of how much you have to forgive because guess what happens in marriage? You take two sinful, selfish individuals and you bring them together and they stand before one another, usually somewhere right here, and they go, I'm never ever going to mess up. And I promise to always be with you and love you. And, and, and they just say, I, it's craziness. So how in the world do these two selfish, sinful people come together? It's the power of the gospel. It's preaching the gospel to yourself daily. How is it that I can forgive my spouse? How is it that she can forgive me? How can you forgive me? How can I forgive you? It's by saying, if Christ was able to forgive me, 
How can I hold this against this person? If Christ had the power to forgive me and he now resides in me, therefore do I now have the power to forgive this person even though they don't deserve it? Even though they deserve justice and they deserve my wrath, am I able by the power of God dwelling in me to do something that is absolutely contrary to human wisdom? Can I do that? Absolutely. It's by going back and preaching the gospel to yourself every day, of reminding yourself of your heart. It's saying, this is how you were saved. This is how you were saved. That's how important it is. And Paul reminds us here in verse 5, he says, And when you were saved, you received the Spirit. Then, that's what he says there in verse 5. He says, Now, and did you suffer so many things in vain in verse 4, if indeed they are vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? What he's saying is this. Guess what you received when you became a Christian? The third person of the Trinity. Folks, there's a theology out, and some of you may believe this, but there's a theology out that says this. The Spirit comes to you later in life. You have to do something to get the Spirit. A second baptism of the Spirit. Something that happens later, you'll get the Spirit. Paul says here, when you become a Christian, when you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, guess what you get in fullness? God. God dwelling in you. The Spirit of God there. Go to the Old Testament and look and see the descriptions of the Spirit of God. The Shekinah glory of God that descended upon the temple, that came into the tabernacle, that lit the way at night uh, for uh, the, the Jews as they were going through the desert. That power, that God has now taken up residence in you. It is so much better than you and Michael Jordan playing basketball. You have the God of the universe dwelling in you, working miracles in your midst. Working miracles in your midst. God is still a miracle-working God. Whether or not you believe it, really, is, it doesn't matter. He's still doing miracles. And you know the greatest miracle of all is that the person sitting in your seat has been saved. That God performed a miracle and took a dead heart and turned it alive. What Andrew was talking about, regeneration. Took a dead heart and said, I'm going to make it alive. And I'm going to cause that heart to believe. I'm going to make this person my child. Folks, that's a miracle. Happened in your midst. So, first question. How are you saved? By grace, through faith, in Christ. So if a world around us is asking, okay, what is this Christian life thing? How is it that I can become a Christian? What do you need to tell them? Believe. Not by works, but by belief. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Confess him as Lord and you too will be saved. And your name will be written in the Lamb's book of life. Indelibly marked, never to be lost or forgiven. End of story, right? I mean, you're saved. That means you're perfect, right? You are perfect. (laughs) Ha ha, gotcha. You are perfect. God has said you were perfect. Ah, but there's this other thing called the sort of progressive work of the Spirit in our lives called sanctification. That there's still some things that need to be worked on in your life. Let's say you can think of the biggest jerk in the entire county. I mean, this person, when you think of it, when I say think of the biggest jerk that you can think of, that person's already come to mind. This person comes and hears the gospel and gets converted on a Sunday morning, okay? Praise God, they're converted. What do you have on Monday? You have a Christian jerk. My dad used to have a little figurine that I bought him from the Hallmark store. And and it was this person chiseled out of this block. And it said, don't give up on me yet. God's not finished with me. 
God is taking that Christian jerk and by the power of the Spirit in his life, transforming that individual to look more and more like his son. That's that movement of the Spirit of changing us to be like Christ. That's what Paul then asks. He first asks, how are you saved? He says, you're saved, obviously, by the work, the completed work of Christ. But then he says this, oh, you started out this way. Now are you going to finish God's work by works of the law? Is it through obedience to the law? Is it through all this religious stuff and your morality that you're going to become more like Christ? That's the second question. How is it that you're going to become more like Christ? How is the jerk going to be changed? How is the idolater going to give up her idols? How is the one who is running after other things going to run only after God? How is the one with harshness in their heart going to all of a sudden have gentleness? How does that work? How does that happen in the life of the believer? That's what's at stake here. Paul says, be careful. Be careful. Because here he's not talking anymore about how you're saved. He's talking how you're changed. And he says it is of absolute importance to get it. Most of us say, okay, Bill, I'll concede. We, we get saved. We start the race with the gospel, but we end it by effort. I've got to stay on course. I've got to keep doing. I've got to live my life trying to be a good Christian. I hear from people regularly, even in this church, of I'm living my life trying to be a good Christian. What does that mean? What that means is I'm trying to hold on. I'm trying to stay the course and hoping at the end of the day that that's good enough for God. That he's going to look at me at the end of the day and say, Bill, there are a lot of mess ups but not enough for me to kick you out. You get to come in. Is that a life of freedom? It's an absolute life of fear, of wondering, have I done enough? Some of you come from different backgrounds and church backgrounds and denominational backgrounds, which use that to keep you in line. You better not mess up. You better come to church every time the doors are open. You better be in the word always. You better do these things because if you don't, God's not going to love you. Or something happens in your life and then you say, oh, how am I going to change this? Oh, I'm going to change it by good, old, flat, white-knuckle effort. It's a pink elephant. You've heard this, haven't you? Don't think about a pink elephant anymore. I don't want you to consider a pink elephant. I don't want you to visualize it in your head. So just don't think about a pink elephant. What are you thinking about? Absolutely. I am not going to think about sin anymore. I am just not going to think about the temptation of all of these people walking on the beach with so little clothing on. I'm just not going to. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I'm going to stare at sand. wonder who's just outside my view. Hmm. Oh, we say we're not and we're just going to will it. And, but we can't control the mind, can you? Have you ever said, I'm not going to do that, and the very next thing you do is do that? Boy, when my kid gets home tonight at 11.05 and his curfew is at 11 o'clock, I'm not going to get upset. I'm not going to do it. I promise I'm not going to do it. Where the heck have you been? What just happened? I scared you. Some of you just woke up. Welcome. I'm almost done. I'm almost done. But you fall back into old patterns, don't you? You say, I'm not going to do that. I'm not. I'm just going to. How is it that then you're changed? How do you do it? We talked about it. Is it a 50-50 split? A little of Jesus, a little of you? 90-10? A lot of Jesus, a little of you? 
Jesus, your co-pilot, you got that bumper sticker proudly on your car? No. Paul says it's radically different. It's by belief in the gospel that you're changed to. Preaching the gospel to yourself day to day is how your life is changed day to day. I'm going to give you an illustration of that. If you've got your Bibles, it's not printed. It won't come up on the screen that's not there. Um, And it's 2 Peter chapter 1 verses 5 through 10. But I'm going to stop at verse 8. Now listen. For this very reason, make every effort... To supplement your faith. So you have faith. Now make every effort on your own. Now now you're going to work these things out. There's got to be human effort. Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control. Self-control with steadfastness. Steadfastness with godliness. Godliness with brotherly affection. Brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The question then is, are those things growing constantly and regularly in your life? Are you fully effective and fully fruitful in your life? Most of us would answer, no. I'm trying, but I'm not getting there. So how is it that I can do this? Why am I not growing in this? Why am I not more effective in my Christian life? Why am I not more fruitful in my Christian life? I wonder if you were to write the next verse what you would write. Most of us would say the next verse would be, because if you are ineffective, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is, period, don't read any further. Whoever lacks these qualities is, fill in the blank, is not working hard enough, isn't involved enough in the word, isn't involved enough in the church. The person who's lacking these things needs to get busy. Get on with it, boy. Get on with it, girl. Come on. Let's go. Get moving. Get doing that. You want to hear what Paul says? Peter says, it's amazing. But whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Do you see what he says? It's amazing, folks. If you are lacking these things, if they're not growing in your life, if you are ineffective in in your life, if you are not seeing the fruit of the Spirit growing, it's because you've forgotten who you are in Christ Not because you're not busy, but because you're not believing right. Because you've forgotten that it's Jesus who is at work in you to will and to do his good pleasure. That it's Jesus who is the the power in your life. Peter, it is an astonishing statement, folks. I read that and I went, there's no way. And I reread it. I said, hmm, I must be misunderstanding that. And then I've realized it's really that simple. How do I see the fruit of the Spirit borne out more and more in my life? Keep coming back to the cross more and more in my life. If I'm a person who's not very forgiving of others, if I hold on to grudges, some of you are holding on to grudges and you need to let go of them. You want justice, and you're getting it by your passive-aggressive nature and just your aggressive nature. You're letting other people know that you were wronged, and you're going to do it. How do you stop that? And maybe you see it in yourself. You go, I hate that about myself, but what do I do? Go back to a Savior and stare at a cross and let it just wash over you. 
If you're a person who says, boy, things are tight and I can't give. There's no way all these poor people out there who need stuff. And I just stand there, they keep asking and they want handouts. They just need to get a job. And they need to buck up and they need to do their stuff. If you're not a generous person and you're terrified when your 401k slips a little bit and you wonder how it's all going to be and you go, I've got to hold on, I've got to hold on, I've got to hold on. How do you become a more generous person? You stare at a cross of absolute generosity. You say, he who was no sin became sin on our behalf. He who was in heaven itself did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, becoming as a man, and lived among us and gave freely to all, believing that the Father would provide for him. Are you a person who has difficulty with your eyes of looking around or your heart and running after other things? Go back to a cross and look at that cross. And then guess what? Work hard. But start with a cross. It does say, I'm not going to think about that and I'm, not, I'm going to wrestle. But what it says is, hey, there's a pink elephant in the room. Best way for me to deal with a pink elephant is to deal with a pink elephant. I'm tired of stepping all around its leftovers. I'm tired of stepping in it. I'm tired of the stench that it's got. And instead of denying the reality of it, I'm going to own the reality of it in my life. And I'm going to say, God, you've got to deal with this in my life. And there is no shame and there's no guilt anymore. So I can confess to a father. I can confess to a brother or sister in Christ that I'm wrestling with this thing. And by the way, folks, all of us have pink elephants. You do know that, right? All of us have them. And all of your friends know you have them. You're the only one who denies it. Oh, I'm not dealing with that. Oh, really? Let God come in and begin to deal with it. We all wrestle with different things. Paul says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. We talked about this last week. And the life who lives, I now live. I live by faith. I fight the fight. So it is fully looking and going back to the cross and then saying, I'm going to believe this. I'm going to believe this, and through my belief in this, I can forgive. I'm going to believe this, and through my belief in this, I can love this person who seems to be unlovable. I can do these things through Christ who strengthens me. Folks, if we began to live our lives and believe what we say we believe, the church would be a lot different than it is. We're on the right trajectory. I'm thankful to be at this church. I love being here. I've got friends in Rock Hill, and I miss them. And they say, boy, don't you wish you could come back? I'm like, no offense. No. I love being a part of what's going on here. Are we perfect yet? We got a lot of Christian jerks in this place. I'll start with me. God's still working on me. Am I perfect yet? No. But you know what? Part of the beauty of all this together is when I come to a brother or a sister My question isn't as much, what are you doing, but what are you believing? It normally is a wrong wrong belief about either your justification or your sanctification. You are either believing wrongly about how you are saved or how you are changed. And my first time of talking with you, and as we work through things, we're going to try to figure that out. And we're going to believe that changing in the belief structures. Now, it may be that if you're struggling with some certain things, guess what? You may need to get rid of the internet in your home. You can live a full and happy life without an internet, can't you? If you're you're struggling, men, if you're struggling with internet pornography, and many of you are, guess what? Put a filter on it and give your wife the passcode. 
You'll live a happy and fulfilled life. You're working it out. You're still dealing with it. Women, if you're dealing with the fact that you buy too many things, give your husband your credit card. You'll live a happy and fulfilled... You're still working on it. Do you get it? Lisa's going, I ain't giving you my credit card. So, no. You get it? We work it out. But we believe that it's God who's at work in us to do it. Let's pray. Father, this is such good news. We're not just left on our own to make it to heaven one day, to sort of blaze the trail and trek the path, but you are there with us every step along the way, and you guide and direct us, you encourage us and strengthen us, you do all of these things in us and through us. Father, forgive us when we have said that we're all on our own, when we've either tried to take the glory for our salvation or the glory for our changing and becoming more like Christ. Would we just lean into you and become more like your son and believe in his power working through us. Would we see a massive cross in our lives? One that is so huge that it dominates everything that we do, that we're not thinking about our own personal piety. We're not even thinking about our morality. We're thinking about Christ. And in focusing on that, we start to see amazing things happen. Father, we do praise you and we will glorify you. Both That's all right. Amen. That's good timing. Let's stand and worship God.